I am Pastor Andrew. I'm not the senior pastor. Pastor Ron will be back next week. He senses love, he senses greeting. Um, but I get the privilege of continuing our series on shame, the great relationship killer. Now, I have to be honest, this is one of my favorite series, talking about shame of all things. I mean, you've been around me, you recognize almost every conversation, I'm like internalizing these lessons learned because it's rocking my life, it's rocking the life of those around me, my kids, my wife, my friends, um, learning, opening our eyes to the power of shame to write our stories. And that's what we're talking about today is we're asking the question, who's writing your story? Is God writing your story or is the devil writing your story based on shame? And we're going to process that a little bit more. But you know, last night... Um, I was rocking my baby girl. She's uh, two months old. She's in the overflow room right now. I was rocking her. I was trying to get her to calm down because she was crying. You know, I'm, I'm a four-time dad. It's my fourth child. So I have a couple moves in my repertoire. You know, I got the football. I got the bouncing on the ball. I got, you know, the squat, the deep squats. I got a couple moves, right? None of them worked. None of them worked. She's just crying, screaming at the top of her lungs. I don't know what's going on. And all of a sudden, I hear the whispers of shame saying, your daughter doesn't like you. You're a terrible dad. You're not enough. You're worthless. That cascade of the story of shame taking me down to a dark place. Next thing you know, I'm agitated. I'm angry. I'm upset. I'm acting out my shame, right? And then my wife came, and she came and rescued me, and she took the baby, and all of a sudden, the baby's happy as anything. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. That's the story of our lives often. This is what happens. It's under the radar, you know. But because I've been studying about shame, I recognize the voice of shame. And that's why we're talking about shame. Because here's the power base of shame. It goes under the radar. And you don't even know the sedition of shame, the saboteur that's behind your story, sabotaging, destroying everything about you. And you don't even know it was there. See, shame is not trying to get recognition Shame is trying to destroy you and destroy your relationships. And that's why we are talking about shame today. We are exposing shame. Before we continue, I want to give credit to the book, The Soul of Shame by Dr. Kurt Thompson. Um, it's a powerful, powerful book. If you're interested in reading more, I recommend that book. Uh, we'll be using some ideas and stories from that book. Um, so I just want to give credit to Dr. Kurt Thompson. I want to give a quick review from last week. Pastor Ron opened up this series on shame by sharing the story of Amon and Tamar, uh, who are the son and daughter of uh, King David. For those who missed it, it's one of the most tragic, horrific stories in the Bible. Okay, if you pay attention, you see the fingerprint of shame all over the story. So Amon was full of lust for his half-sister, and through deception and violence, he sexually assaulted her, and then he cast her out in shame. Okay. And that's a horrible story in itself. But in the context of the greatest story, you see the power of shame uh, overwhelming all of them. Okay? You see, when David, King David, mighty man of God, King David found out that his son did this to his daughter. The Bible said he was furious. He was angry. But he did nothing. He did nothing. Why would he do nothing? This is the man of action. This is the man who saw Goliath and said, hey, I'm going to go cut off the guy's head. Why would he do nothing about this horrific tragedy, horrific violence in his own family? Why would we surmise that in the previous chapter, he was just confronted by the prophet Nathan about his own sexual sin, about his own shame. So you would think somehow shame came into this. 
And he says, you know what? I'm incapable of confronting my, se- my son's sexual sin when I am shamed by my own sexual sin. So because David refused to act, someone else acted instead. Absalom, his son, who was a brother of Tamar, because of her shame, he acted in shame, and he murdered his brother, Amnon. And then there was more shame, there's rejection, there's exile, and Amnon was full of shame. And then it continues, and later you know the story of Absalom, I'm sorry, Absalom, that he later tried to kill David and take the throne, okay? I mean, the twist and turn, the story, okay, is worthy of any, any movie, any, any daytime soap opera. In fact, I wouldn't even let my kids watch this movie with this on TV. It was that horrific. But again, if you have the eyes to see, you see the fingerprint of shame all over this. Shame is trying to rewrite David's story. Shame is trying to rewrite Absalom's story. Shame is trying to rewrite your story and my story. And we can't win this battle against shame until we recognize him. So today, my goal, okay, my action step for today is to awaken just a tiny bit, attune your eyes, your ears, just a tiny bit to the fingerprint of shame. You know, Dr. Kurt Thompson calls it a shame advisor. It's like a little devil sitting on your shoulder. Okay, in every opportunity, he's looking, for, he's looking for a chance okay, to minister shame upon your story. Minister shame upon your story. He calls it the shame advisor. But before we get into how that works, I feel like I need to go and kind of clarify the definition of shame. Okay? We throw the word around shame a lot. Let's clarify the definition of shame. Okay, my definition is by no means comprehensive, but I think it brings us some clarity, okay? Last week, Pastor Ron made the distinction between guilt and shame. Remember that? Guilt and shame, right? Guilt is feeling bad for what you did. It's based on your behavior, okay? Shame is feeling bad for who you are. So it's identity-based. You see, we can change our behavior, but we have a hard time changing our identity, okay? Only God can change our identity. We can't change our identity, So shame plays off the sense of helplessness. So shame says on a fundamental level, on an intrinsic level, it doesn't matter how hard you try, it doesn't matter how hard you work, you will always be a loser. You will always be second class. You really have no value. So this is my working definition of shame. The feeling that you are not enough and that you are not valuable. You are not enough and you are not valuable. Last night when I was holding my daughter, and she was crying and screaming and yelling in my face, that's how I felt. I feel like I was not enough. I don't have enough to calm her down, okay, which leads to I am not valuable. You see? You see how that works? The subtle messaging of shame. You see, this messaging that you're not enough and you're not valuable hits us at our deepest level. See, for us, for men in general, for women too, but mostly for men, the deepest question we have is, do I have what it takes? Am I enough? Like that song. Am I enough? As a man, do I have what it takes to come through? And shame says, no, you don't. You are not enough. If anyone really knew who you really are inside, they would know that you are a phony and a coward. You are not enough. That's the voice of shame. Now, for the ladies, for the women, the deep question for a woman and men, but just specifically for women is, am I valuable? Okay, am I worthy? Am I beautiful? Am I a treasure? Will anyone lay their life down for me? By the way, Jesus did. But will anyone lay their life down for me? That's the fundamental question to every woman. And shame says, you 
are in, you are not valuable. You have no worth. You are ugly. You are tarnished. You are worthless. Shame comes and minister those lies to our heart. Okay, two messages of shame. The definition of shame: the feeling that you are not enough. Okay, and you are not valuable. Now, how is shame ministered to us? It does it in very obvious ways, or it does it in very subtle ways. You know, for many of you, you probably heard directly the words, you're not enough, you're a loser, okay, you're ugly. <clears throat> Those are very direct ways that shame comes and, and ministers to us. When I was in the seventh grade, I remember this moment so clearly. It was seared to my memory. I was in seventh grade in class, and there was another Asian kid. He walked up to me. He just, out of nowhere, he said, I am better than you in every way possible. I'm better than you academically, athletically. He even named it <laughs> interpersonally. And then he just walked away. I was like, what was that? He came, dropped the shame bomb, and he walked away. True story. At least that's, I mean, I remember that vividly. I remember the classroom. was in the science class. Why is that so vivid for me? Because it hit me so hard. I remember feeling so small in the middle of science class. Okay. It was a strategic attack on my identity. You know, in college, I was part of the ultimate Frisbee team. That was, that was, that's not the story, but <laughs> we had a uh, servant auction. Anybody ever done those before? You auction yourself for the fundraiser to do services, something like that. Anyways, I knew it was going to be a train wreck. I knew it was going to be terrible, okay? Um, but they forced me, they pressured me to go and do it. So I did. I was the first person up in front of hundreds of people in college, okay, University of Richmond, okay? Hundreds of people. I was the first person up. And they're like, hey, here's Andrew. How about $5, $10, whatever. What do you start with? For the next 10 minutes, nobody bid on me. Not one person bid on me. Over hundreds of people, everyone just staring at me. Talk about a tangible way to communicate that you have no worth. Literally, not worth. Okay, I even put a plant in there to bid on me just in case. I always have a backup plan, right? And she was so embarrassed and she couldn't even do it. True story. In the end, she mercifully, you know, 10 minutes later. But again, true story. I'm not even joking. True story. And many of you probably have much worse direct attack of shame on your life to communicate to you that you're not worthy, you don't have what it takes, you're not enough. But shame also comes upon us in much more subtle ways. And I would argue much more devious ways. It might be just uh, the tone of the voice correcting you or parents correcting you. Their intention is not to shame you and make you feel like you're worthless, but the tone of the voice communicated that, okay? It might be just a gentle, disapproving head nod, and it just communicates, ah, oh, you are not enough. When I was in, um, back in, again, elementary school, middle school, I was made fun of a lot in school. This is what happened. Kids make fun of each other, right? And I would go home every day and say, mom and dad, I don't want to go to school. These kids, all they do is make fun of me. And whatever reason or lessons they're trying to teach me, which I'm sure was valid, their response to me was, just ignore them. Just ignore them. Now, what I heard, Shane was ministering to me. What I heard was, you're not important enough for us to contend for you. You see how that works? And I have friends who scored very high scores on their tests, scored 95% on their tests. Okay? It's an A. 95% is an A, right? You go and tell your parents, I scored 95%. Well, where's the other 5%? I am not enough because I didn't score that 5%. Maybe it's the subtle feeling that 
Your parents love your brother and sister just a tiny bit more. Again, they never said it, but it's a subtle feeling. They got two presents and you only got one. You see, shame just piggybacks on all these different things to try to minister us. Maybe it's the subtle teasing about some parts of your body that your family kind of jokes about. You know, for me, my extended family, my cousins, my uncles, they always like to make fun of the fact that my eyes are really small. Now, now, honestly, if you just take off my glasses and look at my eyes, you realize I'm basically a cartoon character. Like, when I smile, like, my eyes disappear. True story. Again, I can't argue against that. I mean, they're right. But when they make fun of my eyes and I laugh along with them, I feel this small. I'm just giving you examples. You know, why am I, why am I sharing this stuff? I am not trying to make you guys all victims and go back and psychoanalyze every little mean things we said to, about you. Because we all do it to each other. I'm as guilty of throwing shame upon other people. Okay? You hear what I'm saying? This is not about victimization. This is not about turning you into a victim. This is about attuning your senses, your eyes and your ears to listen to the Holy Spirit identifying how shame works. It twists our narrative and our stories. We want to expose Shame. So, how does shame rewrite our story? Now, to understand the power of shame over our story, we need to first understand the power of storytelling. Storytelling is the way that we look at the world, okay? Dr. Kurt Thompson actually said, we cannot not tell a story. Everything we do, everything we interact with is storytelling, okay? This is the reason why Hollywood is so powerful, because they control the narrative, right? This is the reason why uh, social media is so powerful. Because you tell the right side of story, the history, right? The narrative, controlling the narrative. When you come home from work and your wife asks you, how was your day? You get to tell her a story. It might be a really, really short story. Good. Bad. It was fine. It's a story, though. When you're telling your kids why they need to be obedient, you are giving them a story. When you turn on the news, you're, 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 you're absorbing, you're receiving a story. When you're driving the car, when you made the mistakes and you talk to yourself, I'm an idiot, I'm terrible, why do I keep doing this? You are telling yourself a story. You see how stories are everywhere? Jesus used stories all the time, right? He used these parables because we, th- we see the world through stories. Without even thinking about it, we are telling huge stories of the universe and meaning of life. And we're telling little stories like, why am I late to work? I hit traffic. My, my car got a flat tire. Whatever it is to help us cope with the ups and downs and the stresses of life. That's the power of stories. And we tell stories about ourselves. And that's what I want to focus on. The story you teach yourself, you tell yourself today. Now, when you tell stories about yourself, it really involves your relationship with God. I challenge you to tell a story about yourself that doesn't involve your creator. It always involves your relationship with God. So, is your story like this? That God is deeply in love with you. He's proud of you. He has a great plan and great destiny for you. Okay. By the way, that's the Bible story. That's the Bible's narrative, right? Now, for, for a second, imagine that's really your story. Not just in your head, but in your heart. You truly believe God is deeply in love with you and he's proud of you, okay? If that's your story, check this out. When good things happen to you, you are thankful, but you're not surprised, 
okay? And you are encouraged to keep moving forward. Of course it will happen. I'm aligned with God. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. Of course, that, that good things will happen to me. But what about when disappointing things happen to you? When bad things happen to you? Because this is your story, you remember Hebrews 12, 6, that he disciplines those he loves. You remember Romans 8, 28, that all things work for the good of those who love and call according to his purpose. You see how those verses all tell stories? So when disappointing things happen, you don't get discouraged. You simply say, God's teaching me a lesson. I need to grow. I need to learn. You don't get devastated. You move forward. Now, but for most of us, we tell ourselves a different story. Our story is, God doesn't love me. I am unworthy. I am not valuable. I'm a leftover. And God reserved the best for other people. Okay? For years and years, that has been my story. Now, if that's your story, when good things happen to you, you're shocked. You couldn't believe it. You're like, hmm, when is the other shoe going to drop? You're thinking, what's the catch here, God? I remember that when I was teaching at the alternative school years ago, I ended up getting a summer school job, and I couldn't believe it. I was literally reading the email over and over again thinking, there's no way this is for me. They must send it to the wrong person. Or I'm going to get another email saying, just kidding, that wasn't you. I mean, that told me all, everything I need to know about my story, how I view God. Now, when bad things happen to you, when disappointing things happen to you, what happens if that's your story? I knew it. I knew God hated me. I knew it. I knew nothing good could ever happen to me. I knew I'm unworthy. I knew I deserved this. I knew God didn't love me. And you're devastated. That's the power of your story. You guys see what I'm saying? See, what happens to you doesn't even matter because your story trumps all that. You're going to have a hard time changing people's uh, minds when you throw facts at them when their stories ironclad. Does that make sense? You need to start ch by changing their stories. Your story is so powerful that whatever story, whatever character you play in your story is going to come true, okay? If you play yourself as a victim, you see yourself as a tragic character, you will live out a tragic character. If you, in your story, you're a victor, you're going to overcome. You're a son and a daughter of the Most High King. Regardless of your circumstance, you're going to live that story out. Do you know how that works? It's because your story changes your attitude and your decisions, you could have the worst job, the worst boss, worst circumstance, but your story is that I am in training. I'm a man of God. I'm a son. Then you go into work with a complete different attitude, and your boss sees your attitude, and they're thinking, what's so different about this guy? On the other hand, you might have the best circumstance, all the money in the world, the best wife, the best kid, the best boss, best whatever, but you see yourself as a victim, your story, that guy hates you. Guess what? You're going to destroy everything in your path. That's the power of stories. A few weeks ago, I, as I was learning and reading about this power of storytelling, narratives, um, I went home and I said, hey, babe, we need to talk about our story. We need to talk about our narratives because I need to process this a little bit with you, okay? And as I talk more of her, I realized, wow, her story and my stories are like this. In fact, so many conflicts in our marriage is due to us having contrasting and conflicting stories. You see, in my story, 
Okay, in my narrative, I identify with the character Aragorn from Lord of the Rings. That guy up there. Not like the king, the dirty ranger in the forest. That's who I identify with. You see, Aragorn, he, was, he had the lineage of the king. He had the blood of king, royalty in his heart, in his blood. But meanwhile, he is learning, he is growing, he's staying under the radar, and he's bidding his time for, for, for him to make the greatest impact for good. And that's how I feel. I'm just bidding my time. I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm training myself. I'm waiting for my opportunity to make the greatest impact for the kingdom of God. That's really how, that's my story, okay? And my wife, on the other hand, she identifies with Cinderella, but not the second half, not the beautiful transformation part, just the first half when she's a servant girl hiding under the radar. No one noticed her. She's there just doing dishes, talking to animals. (laughs) Not that part. No animal, no pets in my house. That's why she wants a dog so bad. <laughs> I just realized that. But you see, our lives, our marriage is in a collision course of two completely different stories. And guess what? Our kids are in the middle of these conflicting stories. And this is what I told her. I said, look, I look, babe. I said, our stories on the collision course, but I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. My story is going to win. My story is going to beat up your story. Story is going to swallow up your story. Why? Because, because I'm better and because I'm a man? No, 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 no. It's because my story is aligned with God's story. And your story is aligned with shame. So, so I'm going to take you into my story. And we're going to train together. And we're going to work together. And we're going to wait for our opportunity for us to make the greatest impact for the kingdom of God. Real, this really happened. This really happened. I literally said to her, I said, my story is going to beat up your story. <laughs> see, you see, God is always telling us stories. He's always trying to change our narrative to fit his reality. I just finished reading the book of Revelations, okay? I don't really understand a lot of it. There's a lot of it that I have no clue what it means. But one thing I do understand about Revelation is that in God's story, he wins. Jesus Christ wins. doesn't matter what happens in the world. Christ wins. See, he's interested in telling us the ending of his story. I believe that's the one, one of the main purpose of Revelations. But before we get to the winning and the war, the final war, there are a bunch of battles along the way. And in these battles is where shame comes and tries to sabotage us, cause pain, cause separation, cause destruction. And this is where he comes using shame to corrupt our story. Remember that little shame advisor sitting on your shoulder just ministering shame to you? He does that over and over again to teach us and show us to twist and turn our story that we are worthless and we are not enough. Now I'll give you an example. When you're walking out of the house to the husband, you're walking around the house, okay, you're about to leave, and your wife says, are you going to wear that? You have been introduced to two parallel stories. One story is my wife loves me and she wants to make sure I don't look like an idiot. (laughs) The second narrative, the second story is my wife thinks I'm an idiot. (laughs) Okay? You guys see the difference? Seems like a few words, but it's a huge difference. One story says my wife loves me. She wants to protect me. 
She's for me. And God's for me. And God loves me. And he's protecting me right now for wearing mismatched stuff. This is the providence of God. This is the favor of God. The other story says, my wife despised me. She knows I'm a coward. She knows I'm not enough. In fact, if my wife knows it, God knows it too. I am not enough. I'm worthless. Why even bother? Why even try? You see the cascade of shame takes you down that path? I want to tell you, parents, every time you have an opportunity to minister discipline to your kids, okay, make sure you're telling them the right story. Because how many times did the enemy piggybacks on your discipline? You never intend this. That's never your heart. It piggybacks on your, on, on your discipline and tells a story. My son, Nehemiah, he literally hides. He would disappear. I'll be like telling him, teaching whatever, disciplining him. And all of a sudden, I look around. He's gone. I'm like, where did he go? He's hiding literally in his room. He's hiding. So I have to be careful that before discipline, in the middle of discipline, after discipline, to say, hey, kids, let me tell you a story. Here's a story that God, that you don't belong to me. You belong to God. I'm just a steward as your dad, as your mom. And we're here to tell a story. My, your story is you're going to be used by God for great purposes. My job is to train you. And I'm disciplining you because I love you and you have a great calling. We need to make sure we tell God's story because shame loves to tell its story. Shame ministered to David, to Tamar, to Amnon, to Absalom. And shame ministered to our first parents, Adam and Eve. I'm going to quickly tell the story of Adam and Eve through this perspective of shame and ministering by shame. How the devil using shame twisted their story. After I share this story, I have a, a video testimony of three different people. Okay, Because shame ministered to all of us differently. And I feel like I want to use different people's testimony to help you connect to see how shame ministered to us. But before I want to first talk about Adam and Eve, and when my eyes were open to how that worked, it really surprised me. But if you go to Genesis chapter 2, the end of Genesis chapter 2, it ends with this. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. It's very interesting. It's almost the writer of Genesis, okay, wanted to make a clear distinction that in the original design of man, before sin entered, in the paradise of God, this is how we're wired to be, completely naked and vulnerable with each other and feel no shame. That's where, that's where we're, we're made. We're created to be that way. You see, God has a beautiful story for Adam and Eve. His story is that Adam and Eve were made at the crown of his creation, and he loves them as sons and daughter. He treasures them. They're beautiful to his eyes. And he wants to partner with Adam and Eve forever through their kids to reign and rule this world and give glory to God forever. That's a beautiful story. You can't write a more beautiful story than that, right? That's Adam and Eve's story. But let's see how the enemy come and pervert that story. In chapter 3, oh, just before I start, remember, shame is the feeling that you are not enough and that you are worthless. I want to remind you of that. So chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that Lord God has made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really say? See, the, Satan, the, the devil is so subtle in introducing shame. He starts by sowing the seed of doubt. Doubt. Did God really say that? 
See, doubt causes shame in us because it makes you backpedal and wonder, did God really say that? Did I remember him correctly? When you start backpedaling, you start doubting yourself, you start doubting God, and you start feeling shame. See, the subtle message is, do you really have what it takes? Because you can't even remember what God said. And then he continued, and the woman said, uh, we must not eat from the tree in the garden, but God does says, uh, you must not eat from this tree, uh, you must not touch it, you will die. And Satan continues, he said, you will not certainly die. You will not certainly die. See, now the devil's more direct with his attack. The devil is basically saying to Eve, God is lying to you. God's lying to you. And that's a bold statement. God is lying to you. Wow. Now, get into Eve's mind for a second. She's thinking, why would God lie to me? Why would God lie? If I'm really a beloved, why would God lie to me? And if God lied to me about this, what else could he be lying about? And then devil goes for the kill. He drops that shame bomb in her. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, God lied. He's actually holding out on you. His best is not for you. Again, imagine how Eve felt at the moment. See, her story was that she was the apple of God's eye. She's beloved. All of a sudden, the story has been changed. And she found out that God's actually withholding his best, his most precious gift away from her. She's disoriented. She feels shame. She feels worthless. God doesn't value her. If God valued her, he would have given her the fruit from that tree. Shame begins to take her down its own story. You see, the story about this paradise you're living in, it's really a lie. God doesn't really love you. He barely likes you. How could he love someone so worthless, so ugly, so, so terrible? The greatest gift he has to be like him, he is withholding from you. Here's the real story, Eve, Adam and Eve. Here's the real story. You are not worthy. You're not valuable. You don't have what it takes. And you are truly alone. You're not a daughter. You're a slave. You're not living in paradise. You're actually living in hell. And a few twists and turns, the devil completely changed that narrative. So what did Eve do? She did what any of us would have done that moment. When you're full of shame, when your, your heart has been destroyed by shame, she did what any of us does. She gave in to her worst desires. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she gave some to Adam, and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see, for Eve, it was the fruit. What about for us? When you feel worthless, you ever been there? Worthless, rejected, powerless to change. It doesn't matter how much I try. It doesn't matter how much I work. I would never be able to please God. Because intrinsically, I am worthless. I'm not enough, or please my mom, or please my dad. When we feel dejected and ashamed, we give up, and we give in to our worst tendencies. That's when I see people turn to drugs, alcohol, sex, pornography. Maybe it's binge eating or binge shopping, or maybe it's anger or violence. I've been there before. 
devastated because I feel like I'm not enough, overwhelmed with shame. I just don't even care, care anymore. I've seen young ladies, beautiful young ladies, who keep going back to these horrible, abusive relationships. I'm wondering why you deserve so much more. Why? It's because they're ashamed. They're devastated by rejection by their father. And then by God, they feel like. So they keep turning to self-abusive behaviors or relationships. Because what's the point anyway? I'm horrible. I'm ruined already. There's no point. I'm going to keep going back to it. That's my story. That's shame's story. And all that does is lead to more shame. And shame just multiplies itself generationally over and over and over again. See, this is the power of shame to write our story. Verse 8, then the man and woman heard the Lord God as he was walking through. I'm going to just paraphrase it. He asked, where are you? He says, I heard you. Adam said, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man, look how quickly he turns on her. The woman you put me here with you, she gave me some fruit and I ate it. He didn't just blame the woman. Adam blamed God. The woman you put here with me. See, shame has completed its mission. It's destroyed the relationship we have with God and with each other. Now we hide from God and we turn on each other. And the legacy continues with with their kids. Why did uh, Cain kill Abel? I'm not going to go into that story, but if if you really read it, why did Cain, uh, Cain kill Abel? Shame. He was full of shame when God called him out. His narrative is, I am worthless. So for him, he acted out in violence and killed Abel. You see, we're made for deep intimacy and vulnerability with God and with each other. That's our original purpose. But because Adam and Eve, allowing shame to twist their story, now they're full of walls, blame, isolation, and regret. Shame is always trying to rewrite your story. Now I want to share a vi- uh, show a video. I invited three different people to boldly share the story of shame, how shame is constantly coming to reshape their story. I want you, as you listen to the story, think for yourself, how in these ways is the enemy using shame try to sneak in there and twist and turn the events of your story so you're full of isolation, you're not enough, you're not worthy. Go ahead and show the video. Hey there, my name is Sean McPhillips. Uh, I have gone to Livingstones for quite a while. Uh, I have the awesome blessing of living in Pastor Andrew's basement, and I have done so for just over four years now. So um, this, from the second I moved in, I want to let you guys know that there is this battle of two stories in my life. The first story, which is our default, was shame, failure, I'm not enough, um, super, super amount of level of, of inadequacy in my life. And then there's the second story, which was I'm in training, right? Uh, I'm a son, and I have a great calling on my life. Now, I want to talk about real quick that shame, uh, that shame story that really kind of roots itself is in, and is our default. And uh, I want to give you three areas of my life that have, it has affected me significantly. The first one is financial flaws, right? Financial failures that have happened in my life. Whether it's a business deal that goes significantly wrong or, uh, you know, I lose money or whatever that looks like, um, it was a an overall sense that the Lord is not my provider. The Lord is not going to show up. And more than anything, that the shame advisor said that I'm not allowed to have the best. 
So let's jump into relationships, right? The, the second thing that shame has always destroyed me is, is in having the appropriate connections or relationships or other people are going to be able to have significantly far better relationships and I'm just going to get the second best or I'm going to get the scraps on the table. And then the third thing that has really hit me is comparison. Whether it be my sister or never being enough um, in school or feeling stupid or dumb or whatever that looks like, because of comparison and setting my sights on what other people think versus on what the Lord is, again, it's I feel that I'm not allowed to have enough or I'm not allowed to have the best in whatever, like a family or a friend that has the four kids and they're at 30 versus me being single and some pastor's basement in Northwest Indiana, I felt that the Lord was just like, nope, they're just going to pass on over Sean and no one's going to give him anything. One day I was just fed up with my shame story, right? I was fed up with the same level of mediocrity in my life. I'm just done with this. So what did that look like? I decided instead of living in shame story or shame's narrative and following the shame advisor, I decided to, hey, I'm going to I'm going to try this whole king system out. Like I'm going to try living for the creator of the universe and God's story for my life, not shame in my version of my life. And Guys, what that looked like for me was waking up at 4.30, spending time with him till 5, you know? And, and it, it was like, you know, it, it was just showing up and spending time in those little moments because that one minute turned to two minutes, to three minutes, to five minutes, to 30 minutes. And it all has to start, but you guys have to consistently move that one grain of sand at a time. And this is what happened is now it started, um, you started to see all this stuff happen in my personal life start to change and all this stuff happened in my business life start to change because I started waking up at 4.30. Started waking up and getting and, and choosing which narrative that I wanted to versus just allowing it to happen or it, it, me submit to its authority. You know, we have good hearts. The Lord has aligned us with good hearts. He's just healing our brokenness. And how do we align with Him to heal our brokenness is we consistently fight. But I had to align with who the Creator said that I was. And I had to take those steps and act out and do it. So your story becomes your reality. Christianity has nothing to do with intensity, but it has everything to do with consistency. Hi, Living Stones. This is Debbie Ming. And I wanted to share with you a little bit about my journey in dealing with shame. When I was young, I mean, I had great parents. I grew up in a great family. But one thing that they struggled with was really pursuing my heart in a way that I could receive, in a way that I could process a lot of these negative emotions. So I was basically left to myself. The narrative that I wrote for myself was that I am just never good enough. I'm never good enough. I don't have a voice, and what I say and what I do really have no value. When I was in college, I started developing this passion for people. I was looking around and I saw a lot of my friends who were hurting and were broken, and my heart was just overwhelmed with wanting to help them. And that was my start in desiring just to be a part of people's journey of healing and hope, coming to the Lord, learning to be free, and I got excited about that. So I feel, I feel like that God-given narrative has been so sabotaged by that nagging shame narrative that said, no, Debbie, you are not good enough. Your voice doesn't matter. You can't help anybody. And even though I could have been succeeding, I could have been doing great things, that little nagging voice would always bring me down. And and even in ministry, I would have a great time with, with someone. And then later, I would hear 
you couldn't encourage them. What you said had no impact. They didn't have a good time. They're just being nice to you. Um, they don't respect you, something like that. And that's just how I lived. And somehow I was able to just cope with those feelings and move on. And I was even able to experience a lot of freedom in other areas, except I never faced a nagging shame because I didn't know it was there. If you had asked me, do I deal with shame? I would have told you, no, I don't. And a few months back, I don't know what we were arguing about, but Andrew and I were having some kind of discussion. And I was overcome by the shame feeling and I was about to walk out of the room. And I haven't done that in years, years and years. And when, I, and when we came back and talked about it, he mentioned the word shame. And it struck me. And I was like, shame? Could I be dealing with shame? And I started to Google it. And I, I came across a few Christian books. But the one book that I was like, maybe this is for me, was The Soul of Shame by Kurt Thompson. And I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know anything about it. But I got the book started listening to it, it's on Audible, and it hit me so hard. Shame has been trying to destroy my God-given narrative for my entire life, and what do I do? The, the greatest weapon that he's given me right now are my covenant relationships, and it's through those relationships that, that I have learned to be vulnerable if I could tell them and express to them my deepest, darkest shame, feelings, and thoughts, then they would be able to demolish those things, demolish that shame narrative, and tell me, speak to me again, what my God-given narrative is. And I'm going to cry. And it's been so great. Um, and it's helped me so much. And so instead of hearing idiot or you're not pretty enough, you're not smart enough, you're not good enough. I hear such encouraging things to them, from them, excuse me. And I'm allowing myself to receive it in a deep, deep way that I've never done before. Hi Living Stones, my name is Tim DeLuca. Um, I'm married to Becca and I got six kids. Um, I'm a business owner here in Crown Point. I own a construction company. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about the double narrative life that I've been living for a long time. And just recently, uh, it came up from a few different instances that have kind of uh, brought this to the surface. Um, so this double narrative life that I've been living is we have God's kingdom over here, right? I'm supposed to be a kingdom businessman, but what does that even mean, right? Well, I should be, God should be blessing me. I should have all these resources. I should expect that kind of stuff. I should expect to get the jobs that we shouldn't get um, and that we should have all these blessings that come with being a kingdom business owner. And then the other side is me living in this um, world narrative that says, um, I don't have enough. I don't have what it takes. Um, of course, we didn't get that job. Waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, and then when we do get those blessings, we hold on to them real tight because we're already we're waiting for the, the next bad thing to happen. So I've been living this double narrative life for a long time. Um, and I want to say that I'm in the middle, but I think I'm more negative than kingdom. And that has created a lot of uh, instances where I've made bad decisions or I've bought things I shouldn't have or I've hired people that I shouldn't have or I didn't fire people that I should have. And one such instance for that is I had a, a gentleman working for me who was uh, older than me, almost like a father figure. Uh, really resourceful, really talented, knew a lot about the construction industry. And I leaned on him greatly. Um, but I held on to him probably a year longer than I should have. 
um, because I was honestly, I was afraid. I didn't know if I had enough. Uh, another such instance, um, living in this double world, this one really brought everything to the surface a few weeks back. Um, I needed a new snowblower this past year. I searched for a long time, finally found one, got it picked up, got it back to the house. It ran when I picked it up, of course, we all know how this works. And I get to the house and it didn't work. That was num that was that was the problem number one. Got it fixed. Spent a few hours on it. Got it fixed. That was great. But then we actually got snow. And then when I go out to the garage to start the snowblower, it didn't start. And I was instantly fuming. I was pissed. My kids saw it. They felt Dad's anger. They all kind of backed away. And I was mad. And so I shoveled the whole driveway by myself. My back was bothering me at the time, but I didn't care because I was mad. I was prideful. I was going to show God that I could do this myself. And I really hurt my back really bad um, to the point where I couldn't even walk after I was done. And my wife came out several times and asked me, how are you doing? And I, I just wouldn't answer her. And then she finally came out again and said, how are you doing? And I literally turned to her and I said, you know, I try to do the right thing. I try to be a good steward to, for God's money. I go find a decent uh, snowblower that wasn't really going to you know, break the bank and then what happens, it doesn't work, and God stabs me in the back, literally stabs me in the back. Now, I said this with a lot more anger at the time, and I probably said some expletives that weren't in there, but um, so that brought a lot of things to the surface, and uh, I just, after talking with Pastor Andrew about a lot of things, I just realized I have all these areas of shame in my life that I didn't really think about, didn't even know they were shame, and um, caused me to make a lot of bad decisions, and and not believe in myself and not believe God is for me and constantly living in this doom and gloom area. And I'd have peaks and valley, valleys of being excited then just being beat up and downtrodden. And so I made some changes. I mean, instantly made some changes. And now when I get up or I spend time with the Lord or I start my morning, however it is, I tell myself, I believe, Lord, that you are for me. I believe, God, that you are going to provide a way for me. I believe you're going to open doors for me. I believe you're going to close doors for me and that you're protecting me. And I believe you have greatness for me that maybe I can't see, but it's there. I appreciate these guys for sharing the stories. And hopefully, yeah, they did a great job. And I want to... I want to remind you, you know, all three of them, they've been to church their whole lives. They've been through their church. They know the Bible inside out. My wife is a pastor's kid. You know, it's not about all that. It's not about all that. Because shame under the radar has snuck in there to whisper a complete different narrative of our stories. I know many people don't like to talk about shame, but I found that we have no choice but to talk about shame, the shame errors in our lives. You know, even I asked him to come up and sing the word, uh, the song Jaira. I named my son Jaira. I didn't even understand the significance of it. Jaira, you are enough. Because you are enough, God, I am enough. Jesus is the antidote to shame. Jesus saying, yeah, your identity is not enough, but I am enough, and I'm going to give you, impart my identity to you. But see, we're so used to the world system. We're so used to how we're raised. We're so used to these voices. Our brains are so used to think in the format and the storyline of shame. That's how we go to. That's our go-to move is shame. And we use shame for our kids. I grew up in the Asian American community. We use shame for everything. We use shame to get perfect scores on SAT. We use shame to get into Ivy League colleges. I'm kind of calling them out a little bit. I don't care. 
where shame just propagates and multiplies itself. That's not how we're meant to live. And that gives no glory to our Father in heaven. I want to just give an invitation. I want to ask that if you're part of our, uh, our leadership team, come up here. And I want to ask all of you to stand up as we sing the song. I want to ask you the direct question. Whose story are you living out? Are you living out your story of shame? Or are you living out God's story for you? Are you aware that shame is moment by moment, probably even now, trying to rewrite your story, trying to minister shame to you? Hey, if you're sick and tired of it, we we'll invite you to come on. We would love to pray for you. We would love to help you open your eyes to realize the power of shame. And for you, maybe for the first time in your life, say, I'm ready for a brand new story. So as they minister the song of Jireh, that Christ is enough. I want to invite you, if your Holy Spirit beckons you, for you to come on. We would love to pray for you. Amen? Amen. Have an awesome Sunday. Have a great week. And remember, don't let shame write your story. Amen.